Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the great honor of speaking to Dr. Nicholas Egan. Now, his career in independent schools has included time as a sixth grade lead teacher, a history department chair, and administrative roles, providing him firsthand knowledge of the various interconnected layers of a school. A dedicated educator, Dr. Egan recognizes the vital importance of student growth, both academically as well as socially and emotionally. To this end, he has successfully helped design and implement in-depth social and emotional learning curriculum that integrates emotional awareness, healthy relationships, and ethical decision-making. He is also the recipient of a lifetime Sarah D. Barter Fellowship from John Hopkins University for his achievement in working with academically talented students. Additionally, Nick has created and taught an innovative world religion program emphasizing critical thinking through studying foundational beliefs and practices of the world's major religious traditions. His doctoral work in Asian studies, as well as his experience leading cultural and educational tours for children and adults to destinations including Bhutan, Mongolia, Nepal, Thailand, and Tibet, bring a rich layer of experience to his commitment to cultivating students with a global perspective. Nick develops close relationships with and among students, faculty, and parents, and he looks forward to continuing to inspire students to become lifelong learners and compassionate leaders. He currently lives in Healdsburg, California with his wife and three daughters. Welcome, Dr. Nicholas Egan. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Great. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'm ready. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So Nick, can you tell us a bit about your leadership journey and what you're doing now? Sure. So I come from a family of entrepreneurs. That's always interesting. It is interesting. It gives me a specific kind of background knowledge or maybe perspective. But I went into philosophy and religion. So my academic background is within philosophy and comparative religion for my master's degree. Ideally thinking that I would become a professor. And I did that for a period of time. And I realized that it wasn't really what I was looking to do permanently. And so I found myself looking for opportunities. And somebody said, oh, why don't you come teach just a brief class at a private school near where I live in Northern California? And I did that. And I really fell in love with the age group. It was fifth grade at that time. And over a year, I was doing that. And then they offered me a position teaching history, actually history. And also they had a world religions class. And so I was doing those two things. And, you know, one thing led to another in the private school world, which is really the only kind of professional world that I'm very familiar with right now. 
if you're willing to do more things, you get more and more recognized as a leader. And so it became fairly clear that I could become a department chair and then move into administrative work and then become head of school. So that was kind of my arc. I didn't start off thinking that I would be in primary education. It's not something that I set out to do, but I found myself kind of drawn to it naturally. Mm-hmm. And so what are you doing now? Now I'm the head of a school here in Northern California. Okay, great. And so how would you describe your leadership style? There's two principles that I try to follow as much as possible. The first is distributive leadership. So I try to delegate as much as possible and empower the people kind of downstream, essentially, as much as I can. For me, that looks like my administrators and my teachers and just give them decision-making capability and know that I trust them and make it as clear as I can what the outcome that I would like to see and then how they get to that outcome is kind of up to them. I let them have some creativity and freedom with choosing that. That's one. And then the other is I try very hard to adhere to the 80-20 rule. You know, there's a book called Essentialism that I think came out in 2013 talking about the Pareto principle or sometimes called the Pareto's law. And most people I think are familiar with that in professional setting. But if you're not, it's essentially the idea that 20% of what you're doing creates 80% of the effect. So one way to look at that is 80% of what you're doing has little to no effect toward whatever outcome you're looking for. And so trying to pare down, pare down, pare down, and just become more precise in terms of what you're actually trying to do instead of trying to do everything all the time, which becomes a trend, I think, in modern society, unfortunately. Especially in education, because so much is coming at us. Um, I can certainly see the entrepreneur influence in what you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting. I talk to other heads of school and you know, oftentimes they come from a purely academic background. Their training was around being a teacher. And so they get into a leadership role, especially, you know, a head of school role where they have to do budgeting, they have to do marketing and all of these things. And it's much more similar to running a small business than it is being an academic department head within education. And so it can be disconcerting, I think, in the beginning if you don't have some of that background. So I was really lucky to have that growing up. Right. Now, you mentioned trust. Trust is something that to me is essential in running a school in having that foundation of trust within the school. Mm -hmm. So how did you build that? How did you approach that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think many leaders come to an organization if they're new, they're looking for people to prove that they're trustworthy and then they give them trust. When in my experience, I found it the exact opposite. I tend to trust people first And I find that if you don't trust people, it essentially makes them untrustworthy. And another way to put that, it's not so much about deception. It's about trusting them to do a good job, to do their best, to put their best forward. And I found that the more you can give people responsibility, the more their IQ raises. You know, if you are the one micromanaging a situation, they're going to come to you for every little thing. But actually, if you do a little more of a hands-off approach, all of a sudden, they have the answers that they would have normally come to you. And nine times out of 10, their answers are great. And sometimes they're even better than the ones that you would have come up with as a leader because they're the real person that with the quote unquote boots on the ground approach. So it's really important if you do believe in distributive leadership, if you do believe in the 80-20 rule and you're not in the micromanaging, then if you don't have that foundation of trust that people will put forth their best effort and their best selves, then I don't know how you could do that kind of leadership and not have that as a foundation. 
Right. There are people that come in, they just don't trust. It's very, very difficult, whether it's mm -hmm. because of their background or issues or things that have happened. They just don't and they want to. So my suggestion is always to do work around building trust, because if you don't, you know, it really affects your organization. So yeah. thank you so much for that. And I just want to add one more thing. If you're going to take that approach as well, you have to be willing to tolerate some level of failure on the part of your people that you have to be willing to tolerate that it's not going to get done necessarily every single time the exact way that you wanted it to get done and that you just communicate that going forward. And the more that you do that, the more that builds trust in your organization when they see that over a period of weeks and months and years that, you know, the leader is not going to have this reaction to things not working out exactly as he or she wanted, then that builds a level of trust and security and confidence in your people. And then it becomes this organic force that keeps growing. Okay, great. Now, Nick, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny. They're one of my favorite quotes, I was just having a back and forth with um, somebody that I work very closely with, and I had sent this quote to her, and so she just emailed it back to me because I'm working on a presentation around leadership in a couple weeks. And it's from the Tao Te Ching, which is one of the oldest books. It's a Chinese philosophy book. It's the foundation of Taoism, which is a strong Chinese philosophy. And so it's by Lao Tzu. And it's a long quote, but I'll read it here. Okay. Um, and it says, when the leader governs, the people are hardly aware that he exists. Next best is the leader who's loved. Next is one who's feared. And the worst one is one who's despised. And then it goes on and it says, the leader doesn't talk, he acts. And when his work is done, the people say, amazing, we did it by ourselves. And it's that kind of sense of, I think, giving people pride in their work, that a true leader is more of a facilitator and not a micromanager. Hmm, a powerful statement. And why does that speak to you? I mean, I know it's connected to your leadership style. But what is it about that quote that grabs you? I guess it echoes my experience. And it's good to have reminders about that. Because it's very easy, I think, for leaders to slip into mentality or a mindset where they'll just do it all themselves. And they'll take care of it. You know? And very often we come from a place where we were good at our craft, right? So if I was fairly good at teaching. And what's easy to do is slide back into the sense of like, I'm good at the craft and therefore I can do that thing better than whoever you're talking to. And if you slide into that, it really does a disservice to yourself as a leader and it does a disservice to the people that you're working with. And so that's why I think it's a good reminder just to come back to. Mm -hmm. So in the scale, the best one is one who governs, then loves, then the one who's feared, and then the least is the one who's despise despise we don't want that we don't want that one no definitely not but the best he says is the one where the people feel like they do it themselves that they feel ownership of their success that's the best kind of leader beautiful okay so nick what type of leader are you inspired by and why that's a great question i'm very inspired by leaders that seem to keep a clear vision as to what matters and not get bogged down in Minutia. There's a great danger for leaders that are running complex organizations to really get bogged down in minutia. I've seen it time and time again, you know, in my industry and in even other industries that I'm connected with. It's easy to lose sight of that bigger picture and what's essential. And 
right now I'm very much enamored with Elon Musk's leadership style. He just released, or I guess his company released an email that he sent out talking about communication with his people and saying that essentially, you know, the old school model of communication within an organization was going from, you know, the rank and file to a manager, sometimes to another manager to talk to another department's manager and then all the way down and how much is lost in that communication. And he was saying, you know, he wants it to be a flat structure where anybody can talk to anybody in order to get things done. He was talking about Tesla, his car company. He said, we can't really compete with the big guys in terms of, you know, the funding that's behind us and even the operational strategies um, to some degree. But what we can do is be quick and nimble and intelligent. And if we're going to do that, we have to have a communication strategy that's fast and that echoes that. And so I like that way of thinking. So a leader who has a clear vision and a leader who values clear communication. Yeah, and one that's not threatened by a lack of rigid hierarchy within their organization. That's the kind of leader that I admire. Hmm. And, you know, that happens a lot in education, at least my experience, where you have that hierarchy. And this is the reason why I'm doing this is because that's so ineffective. I believe it's changing, but it's been a part of our culture for such a long time. And the lack of communication really does affect everybody. That kind of rigid hierarchy, it's great if you are dealing with work that's fairly predictable or there's not a lot of competition or you don't have to make these big pivots or shifts in terms of your tactics. But I think for most industries, that's just not true anymore. You know, the speed that we're operating at is just phenomenal with the Internet and with, you know, people's demands and expectations around essentially customer service. Even within education, customer service is a big part of it. And you have to be willing to let go of those rigid hierarchies to operate. I just don't see how you can do it otherwise. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Now, what's the best advice you've ever received? That's a great question, too. I have received a lot of really good advice. Um, You know, I lived in Asia for some time when I was studying in graduate school. And I had an experience where there was an older Buddhist monk. Mm -hmm. And he said something that really stuck with me one time. It was basically... He said the essence of diligence is knowing when to take a break. (laughs) And what he's talking about is I think that we have a tendency, especially in the West, especially in America in particular, to just go, 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 go all the time. There's a sense that if we're not going all the time, we're kind of sliding backwards. And what he was saying was if you really want to have diligence, meaning like, you know, effort applied to something over a period of time, you have to know when to take a break and to have that balance. And so that's a good piece of advice, I think in general, and it certainly is for me personally. That's excellent. I tend to go, go, go. And I think that happens a lot in education because there's so much to do. And I think, you know, when you speak about internalizing it for us as leaders, but also remembering that the people we lead need breaks. Absolutely. That is such a great thing. And I'll tell you, I I don't know what it is about teachers in particular, I think have a really hard time with that message. You know, if I hear that a teacher is staying here until seven, eight, nine o'clock at night and doing work or working on lesson plans, I pull them in and I say, look, you've got to go home at a certain time, whether that's, you know, 430 or whatever. I mean, within reason, because the work is always going to be there. You can always do more and more and more work. It's up to us to put it down. Mm -hmm. And I think that that discipline is hard because you have to have the confidence that you're going to have the resources to do it, to finish that work or do whatever you need to do in the future. But it's really hard. I mean, the demands that we place on teachers and the expectations are tremendous. So having that discipline is important. You know, I love that because 
there was one time where if a teacher would work till seven, the leadership would say, oh, that's a hardworking teacher. I think I'm going to keep her. But looking at it differently, and I really appreciate how you value your teachers because you're looking at their personal lives and how they need breaks. And they don't need to do all that. And it is certainly difficult. It's funny. I tell people I have developed adult onset ADD brought on by severe (laughs) multitasking. Because sometimes I'm just doing one thing and I'm thinking, I'm such a slacker. I could be doing so many things. But what it's done, it's moved me into making sure I take breaks. So I have it on my phone where I'm working and I have to take a break because, you know, I can go on and on. Yeah, you have to have some kind of system to help you take breaks and get up and walk around and do all that. And I just want to add one more thing when you were saying sort of the old model, but it's still prevalent now. It's like the people that work into 7, 8, 9 p.m., they're the hardworking ones. And I see it's the exact opposite. When I see a teacher that's doing that systematically, and we've had talk after talk about why you shouldn't be doing that, what I'm starting to see is a teacher that actually can't prioritize, that is having a really hard time prioritizing what needs to be done. And that's a huge red flag for me. So it's the opposite. You know, if they can't figure out how to prioritize and know that that pressure is not coming from the leadership and all of that, then it can become a problem. It's interesting perspective. Thank you so much for that. Now, I'm assuming that you've built some teams. And so what does it mean yeah. to you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? Oh, well, a good team is everything. A good team is absolutely everything. If you can't build a good team, you know, forget it. Way too many leaders focus far too much on the outcome and the strategy and the tactics. And they spend a fraction of the time building the team that they need to. You really have to prioritize team building as kind of the key component, because if that's in place, everything else will go fine. And so I guess my thinking around team building is a lot of connection. You know, I think you can build teams organically and I think it has to do with connection communication and, you know, size of team is important. I like to work with teams of, you know, no larger than six if I'm trying to do something big and then you can have subsets of teams and manage it that way. But if you have too many people in the team, you lose a close sense. I mean, you can go as high as like eight or even 10, but beyond that, it starts to get really unmanageable from a team feeling and it's something that should be maybe split apart. And I will say that most people can find a groove working with a team. It just takes a little bit of time and you have to get to know them. I've occasionally used things like personality tests and all that as a way of opening dialogue, you know, and sharing with the team like, oh, this is how I see the world because you can see the world very differently. But we can all learn to share perspectives and do that. Occasionally, there will be times when you have to remove a person from a particular team. There is that contingency as well um, that sometimes needs to happen, but it's rare. Now, you mentioned connecting. Can you elaborate a little bit on the importance of connecting with others and how do you do that? How do you personally work to connect with others? Yeah. You know, they have the saying in the military, I don't know exactly how it goes, but it's basically saying that the people in the trenches are fighting for the people next to them. They're not fighting for the big cause. They're not fighting for the top brass. You know, they're fighting for who's with them in the trenches. And you get that sense of camaraderie, the more kind of contact and communication and openness that you can have with people. My style can come across as very casual in the sense of we're just sitting, talking, having tea or, you know, whatever. Maybe we're doing a walking meeting or something like that. Or even, you know, talking about some personal issues that they're having, you know, or things that I've been thinking about or hobbies or whatever it is. And that's a kind of connection 
that I think people undervalue, that that actually is the glue that holds together a really effective team. You don't have to hire the outside consultant to come and do this big team building exercise if you're skilled at, on a one-to-one basis, bringing a team together. That's what I've found anyway. Uh, those things are helpful. It depends on kind of the leadership style, but I like it to be a little bit more organic and less kind of forced. Right. And I believe that good leadership mm-hmm. is about relationships. Absolutely. And certainly that's important. So Nick, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Oh, a challenge that I've experienced. Yeah. I mean, when I first came to a strong leadership position, by strong, I mean, when I became a head of school, I have about 34 employees and I had never run such a large team. You know, I'd been team leader, had administrative roles in smaller subsets. But, you know, that aspect, just the number of needs and questions that people have on a day to day basis became challenging for me to manage. And I'm not the most uh, naturally organized person. So I really had to lean on my calendar. I mean, I live and die by my calendar. If I don't calendar it, I don't do what that thing is. And, and I, if I really we have a blackout, we're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> And so I think that that was one of the major challenges. I had a few people that were in my life at the time that were sort of saying that I couldn't do it, mm-hmm. that you know maybe I wasn't ready for it or, or whatever it was. Yeah. And it, the challenge was not letting their projections and their doubt kind of stick in my mind and make those things a reality. And so getting through it, I had a sense that, you know, we all have untapped resources right. and I really believe that when faced with these bigger challenges that we can dig deep and find a way to work through them. And so I really trust that. I trust that we each have the resources to do that. So you at that time, I mean, you're making a major decision and you want to push yourself and then you have people around you doubting that you can do it. That's a tough thing. Yeah, it was a tough thing. There were colleagues that for kind of personal reasons didn't necessarily (laughs) want me to succeed. Well, that's a Um, tough thing too. (laughs) Yeah, that is a hard thing to overcome, but I think it can be overcome and it's about talking to yourself positively. And um, people, I think, are too reluctant to make big jumps. They have this sense of like, well, I'm not ready yet. Or if only I learned this other thing or I've got to go to school to get this other degree or whatever it is. Um, And I can fall into that as well. But I think that most of the time, you can learn on the job quite quickly. And three months on the job is going to be better than two years of academic study. And it's going to be better even than two years of doing a job that's slightly below it, right? Right. So a lot of people go into like an associate head of school role, and they do that for 10, 15 years, and then they move into a head of school role. Actually, if they would have gone into a head of school role, they probably would have been fine anyway. you know. Mm -hmm. And the assistant head of school position doesn't necessarily train you for the next jump up anyway, because you're doing different kinds of things. Your priorities are different. So I like to encourage people to just take the leap. Just jump and grow your wings on your way down. Exactly. (laughs) And if you fail, really, I mean, who cares? That's the thing. I mean, I I have three kids and I'm a sole provider for them. Mainly my wife does consulting work also. But there is that added pressure of having to provide for a family and all of that. But at the same time, very few people would look at that and say, well, he did that for two years and he failed and it didn't work, you know, and they're going to hold that against you. Instead, they're going to look at that as a positive and maybe put you in a different kind of position. So I'm a big fan of that, but I'm more optimistic. That's great because a lot of us are faced with that. And sometimes fear can paralyze us. But if we go at it, count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, jump. 
Exactly. <laughs> that works. Here's a quick message to help you start 2018 strong. I'm launching new mastermind groups in January 2018 that will help you grow your influence, whether you're an educator, administrator, or just hungry to grow. Take advantage of our early bird registration and sign up for a group that fits your schedule. Go to masterleadership.org and select masterminds. Now, you said you had 34 employees. What kind of a school do you lead? So we're a private independent school, and we are kindergarten through eighth grade. Okay. We're accredited through WASC, which is the Western Association of Schools and Colleges, which out here on the West Coast, that's who accredits everybody, essentially. And we're also a member of International Baccalaureate, which is an international accrediting body. So we are K-8. We do inquiry-based learning. Social-emotional learning is a big part of what we do. And also community service. Service learning is the other piece of what we do. Now, I had read that social-emotional learning is a big part of what you do. Why is that? Yeah, so my background in education, I mentioned the philosophy and religion piece, but actually my bachelor's degree is in psychology. And my program was very much aligned with what now gets termed as positive psychology. And within the educational world, it gets termed as like social and emotional learning. And it's the idea, you know, popularized out of Daniel Goleman's work back in the 80s that Actually, the skills of emotional awareness, emotional regulation, self-regulation, and then applying those things to social settings, meaning like conflict resolution, team building, all of that, they're better indicators of future success than even IQ. And the interesting thing is that they're very teachable, right? So whereas IQ, in theory, actually should be fairly fixed. It's your innate mental capacity. But these other skills are extremely teachable and that if they're connected with future success, we're doing our kids a disservice by not emphasizing it. And so one of the things that I did at my previous position before I became, you know, in the administrative role, I helped create and implement a social emotional learning program that was school-wide. And I saw within a couple years, it really transformed school culture. I mean, it really went from a pretty ordinary kind of school culture to one of kindness and awareness and discipline and behavior challenges went down. And it's just been really tremendous. And then my background with philosophy, you know, I'm very connected with meditation and all of that. And now mindfulness has become a hot topic within education. And so here at this school, we have a school-wide mindfulness program where every kid is meditating every day for anywhere from two minutes, my kindergartners to... 10 minutes, my fifth graders. And it's tremendous. I mean, kids use it at home. They use it for stress regulation. It's fantastic. I call it leadership skills. It's all about social emotional connection, right? Um, right? If we teach this at a young age, you set these kids up for success and we develop really strong leaders. To me, that's one of the missing pieces in education. We focus so much on academia and we don't focus on social emotional competencies and yeah if you look at leadership skills very rarely does it have to do with quote-unquote academic skills you have to be intelligent enough to be able to problem solve and so that critical thinking piece is a huge part of it mm -hmm. but so much of the job is managing your teams and connecting with your constituency your stakeholders in education for me it's parents students teachers etc and so those are interactions and so having a skill set that helps you when things get tough with personal interactions, it's critical. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? I tend not to dwell too much on successes. I mean, it's important to take time to recognize them. But at the same time, you know, kind of resting on your laurels, I'm always <laughs> a little bit afraid of that. Right. 
a recent success that I've had. We rolled out an entrepreneurship program here. And, Not and surprised. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, for our seventh and eighth graders, and it has to do with coding, actually. So the idea is that they're learning entrepreneurship, they're learning business planning, marketing, et cetera, through coding mobile applications for phones and then actually literally bringing them to market on the Google App Store um, to add a realism to it. Otherwise, there's not a lot of skin in the game. So that's been an amazing program. And last night, we happened to have our back to school night. And I was watching one of my teachers talk about this program to a group of parents. And it was just amazing to me to see how far we've really come and what a difference it's making in these kids' lives. We're only in our second year of the program. So the kids have developed working apps already? Yeah, exactly. So you can go on the App Store and it's not for Apple, it's for Android. Go on the Google App Store and you can find them. They think intensely about bringing these things to market. And, you know, at the heart of good entrepreneurship, it really is empathy, right? You have to empathize with somebody that has a need and then how to meet their needs. So that's right. social emotional learning right there. The pain points and... Exactly. So I have those moments where I get sort of hit in the face with, wow, what we do on a daily basis is changing the lives of these kids. And who knows whose lives they're going to change. And it's just an ongoing chain. It's this, this ripple effect that's out in the world. And I, that makes me feel very joyful. That's great stuff. Now, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? Oh, well, first I would pour them some tea. (laughs) And I would say, it's not as bad as you think. That's the first part. Let's get a little bit of spaciousness. Mm -hmm. It's not as bad as you think. Anything is fixable. And then I would just go through, and there's some really good tools out there, even, you know, charts and things like that, to find out where the sticking point is. Why is the culture like that? Are there one or two people that are poisoning the well, so to speak? Is there something that you can do structurally within the organization that's a real sticking point for your teachers, parents, or whatever the problem is? And then figure out, you know, how could you get past that? Do you need to bring in a team? Do you need to have kind of a focus group? Do you need to be listening to the right kind of people? Maybe there's somebody that needs to go. Maybe there's a one toxic employee that you can try to work with and you remove them. I mean, I've been in that experience where Whether it's of their own accord or not, one person leaving can make a big difference in the overall culture if you hire somebody positive kind of behind them. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would tell them is that in my experience, if you stick to your principles, people that aren't aligned with your principles are going to leave anyway. And so that's a good thing because it's going to become clear if you're a new leader, you're replacing an old leader usually. And in that situation, those people were used to a certain leadership style, a certain mission and vision. And when you come on, it's bound to change. And that's not going to be right for everybody. And to be open with that, you have to say this is not for everybody, but here's my mission. Here's what we're going to do. But again, just that nothing lasts forever and it's going to be okay is what I would tell. (laughs) And I'd uh, I'd try to tell them some horror stories maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how important is it to have a go-to person, like a coach or a mentor? It's absolutely critical. And I would say you need a few of them just to help you think things through, number one. And then number two, to make sure that you're not crazy in the sense of not going too far down the path. Very often I go to different people, my close counsel, I'll Mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. And I'll go to them and I'll say, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Here's the situation. Tell me, is this crazy or tell me the other side of this? And the ones that I have are very honest. You know, they're not yes people. And so they'll say, well, have you thought about it like this, this, and this? I may continue down my path anyway, but at least now I understand kind of the other perspective. There are a lot of people (laughs) in national level politics that don't seem to be able to do that. And I think that that creates this division and divide. Whereas if you're running an organization, you can't afford to do that. That's one of the characteristics of a good leader. 
to have an inner circle, someone who you can bounce things off of because we all have our blind spots, right? Exactly. Thank you so much for that, Nick. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? Lifelong learner sounds pretty noble. I'm more of a nerd. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I love to take classes. I mean, I'm constantly taking classes on, you know, leadership, organization, but other things too, other things that interest me, whatever it is. But I am always reading. I read a book probably every other week. It should be a book a week. And it's almost always nonfiction. But that's just my personality. I love reading. I love to learn through reading. I retain a lot that I read. Other people, you know, watch videos or whatever. I just think it's refreshing. For me, it feels like it's adding fuel to my tank. You know, it's not a drain at all. It's the opposite. I read a lot of business books, a lot of self-help, positive thought kind of books. But I'm currently reading a book. I think it was a New York Times bestseller called Phenomena, I think. And it's all about the government, the CIA and the Defense Department and their experiments with mind training mm. and mindfulness and remote viewing and all of that. So it's a little bit wacky. Um, but it was written by this Pulitzer Prize winning author. And it's really interesting. It's fascinating to me to just learn about different industries and the insides and outs. It's great. Mm-hmm. And so I do have a question about what would you recommend for our readers? Is that one of the books you were going to recommend? Maybe if you're interested in weird stuff. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, say, it's, that's yeah. heady stuff. But, you know, if it's nonfiction, it can be scary, but it's yeah. sobering as well. Yes. And I like it, that. I enjoy books that show outside of the box thinking. So, yeah, I would recommend that book. But in terms of, you know, really great books that I would recommend to almost anybody in a leadership position, my favorite book is Essentialism by McKeown. I just think it's such an important book. And I actually made all of my staff read it and write a paper on it over the summer. (laughs) Uh, Just a one page reflection about how they were going to apply essentialism in their teaching and how we're not going to try to do everything all the time. We're going to try to do less, but better. And that's been a life. I like that, less, but better. One of the better books that I've read recently, it's a book called A Beautiful Constraint. Mm -hmm. And it's um, two guys, I want to say they're British, I'm not entirely sure, but they have a marketing agency called Eat Big Fish. And it's talking all about how you can take whatever the constraint is within your business. So there are a couple of things you can do. One, you can kind of deny it or be locked in by it. That's kind of the lowest level. And then two, you could mitigate it. You can lessen it in some way. And then three, and what they identify as kind of the highest thing is you can make it, quote unquote, beautiful, make the constraint beautiful. And what they're saying is you can make your perceived weakness actually become your greatest strength. And I'll give you an example of something that we've done here at the Healdsburg School. We are actually on a fairly small campus. It's a temporary campus. We're about 10 years old. We're in the middle of actually acquiring a new permanent campus, but it's a modest kind of setting right? And so it's a private school. We're trying to get people to come and pay money for education when they could get another education for free. And also there are other private schools in the area. So why would they choose ours? And so we're fairly small. We're about 200 kids and it's humble campus. And we can't compete necessarily with the big campus down the way that has the giant theater and all of the huge gym and all of that. And so if we were to try to do that, we're going to lose every time. Right. And so we made the decision early on, my admissions director and myself, that actually where we're going to compete is the personal touch. We're going to be the school where every kid is known and where every parent has some kind of contact with us from the second they come in. And so what we did was we revamped our entire enrollment process. We used to do these big open houses kind of in personal, and then we would kind of funnel people through that. What if we just did away with those entirely and only did personal tours? 
And we added then another layer, like a parent interview where people felt connected. They could ask us questions. We asked them questions. You know, the national average of converting sales, so from inquiry to enrollment, it's about 65%. We actually got our conversion rate up to almost 90%. So we're 15, 20% better than all the national average. And it's because of that high touch. You looked at a challenge Mm -hmm. in an area in your organization that was difficult and you had to think differently about it. How can this work for us, in other words? Exactly. How do you make that constraint beautiful? Okay. Now, Nick, if there were something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? This may sound weird coming from a private school guy, but I would say access, you know, fair access for everybody to education. It's so unfortunate. I've taken some tours of schools, public schools, and they'll even like a charter school that's housed on the campus of a larger public school. And just the inequality in terms of what kids are getting, the quality of educational experience that those kids have, even charter versus regular public on the same campus. I mean, it really, it just strikes me as so unfair. And I think a lot of it has to do with public education, especially, or is this huge bureaucracy. And with huge bureaucracy comes some rigidity. It comes that strong hierarchy and it becomes less nimble. And so what I think the answer to some of that inequality is, is to really empower on the ground principles. And having never really worked in public education, I don't understand the exact ins and outs of that. But it seems to me that when things go missing, it's partly because of lack of resources, but it's more to do with the distribution of resources. And that has to do with the primary principle on a site, not having complete say over where things go and how things work. And I just think that has to change. If we're going to be competitive in the future, we have to be able to change that. I mean, the other cultures have done it. They tend to be much smaller than ours. They tend to be much more homogenous than ours. So there are some innate challenges that are there. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. And I, I don't know all the answers. But that access and inequality, it's just heartbreaking, you know, to see kids that are not able to get a good education. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Now, you have a lot of responsibility. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? I always take time in the morning. I actually write out some affirmations. I have like some goals that I write out 15 times what my kind of future goals are. And then I email it to myself. These are goals and affirmations? So they're goals, but they're written in an affirmation kind of style. So I will be X, right? Or I will do X or whatever it is. You know, so if somebody wanted to be a published writer, how they would write it, they would say, I am a published writer by the time I'm 35 or whatever their goal is. And it's several of them and you write it 15 times. I do that on a daily basis. I try to meditate daily. These days with three young kids, I don't always get there. So that can be in the morning or in the evening if possible. And then I exercise. I try to get to the gym a few times a week. And I feel like that helps set intentions. Mm -hmm. So you set your mind, you set your heart, and you set your physique, your body every day. Yeah, it's important. Those three things, we split them up. In the West, mm-hmm. we split those things into three separate compartments. But actually... I just they're, did. They're, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But they're very much connected. Right. You know, you're, the functioning of what we focus on as mind is very much related to the health of the body, and it's very much related to your emotional state, too. So those three things. Um, mm-hmm. I also drink a lot of tea. <laughs> and I think that are you, are you I, sipping on tea, tea right, right now? now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I drink a lot of tea. You should have told me we would have had yeah, tea together we... during this Skype session. Okay, mm-hmm. we touched a little on this. Many educational leaders put in long hours. What advice would mm-hmm. you give leaders about maintaining balance? 
you're going to have long hours. That's a part of the game. Education's nice though because we also have these breaks built in depending on your school. You get, you know, the winter break and some time over summer, hopefully. It's what I said before, the work just doesn't go away. And at some point, you know, you have to get done what you need to get done. But at the same time, you have to be willing to drop that thing or table that thing and to walk away from it and to have a good evening with your family and to do the things that recharge you. If you can't do that, you're going to burn out. That's big in education. There are a lot of teacher burnouts. There are a lot of ed leader burnouts. Um, I've come across so many ed leaders who have retired mm-hmm. and Nick, they get sick. Sure. They cancer. It's intense what happens. It's happening to too many. I think this is an important topic here. Um, now, Nick, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I think that all of one's journey creates the sum total of who we are now. Mm-hmm. And so to go back and think that, you know, if only I had done this thing differently, or if I had thought differently about this, I mean, maybe you would accelerate the process. But at the same time, those hindrances are actually what creates the thing itself, right? right? It's sort of like sculpting something out of marble, you know, you have to grind it down <laughs> to be able to reveal what's inside of the marble. So I don't know that I would go back and give any advice, really. And I don't think I would necessarily encourage people to think like that. The more I ask this question, the more I tend to agree with you. Because if it weren't for all the stuff I went through, I wouldn't be where I am. And I don't know if I would listen to the advice anyway, at that time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there's no shortage of advice. So what advice would you give a new leader? Yeah, I would say you've got to find a couple of people within your organization that you can really connect with separate even than the greater kind of population find them find the people that are going to be your allies it's number one and then trust yourself that you're going to get to the right answer you've got to trust yourself you have to and then if you don't you're going to own up to that and you're going to move forward and you're going to say i'm sorry i didn't here's what i was thinking and we're going to move forward because people are very willing to give you the benefit of the doubt if you own up to the mistakes that you've made and are clear as to why you did those things. Um, that's the advice I would give. I would also give another piece of advice. Sometimes, at least within my experience, you have one, two, three, maybe five people that are just within your constituency groups, maybe not your employees. I'm talking more about the stakeholder groups that actually they're just negative as a worldview. And they're just complaining kind of constantly about certain things. And if you fix one thing, they're on to the next thing. And some people live in that. Some people, that is the water that they're swimming in, and you can't take that on yourself. So don't take it personally. And also, there comes a point where you listen to them, but you choose not to react or quote-unquote fix the situation because actually they're just like exuding negativity. It's very easy to get bogged down by that. Right. Okay, great advice. So last thing, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't talked about? Yeah, I guess I'm not sure who exactly is listening to this, you know, whether they're all educational leaders or if they're business leaders or even teachers. There's a way of thinking about leadership that points to the person in charge. And what I personally think and what I think we should move to as a society is that we're all leaders in and of our own right. Like leadership isn't a thing that belongs to the person in charge. It's something that we can all demonstrate in our daily life. And so it helps if the person on top is interested in empowering everybody to feel like that. But also as a teacher or an employer or whatever, you can take it on yourself to become a leader within your organization. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean a title. That means being your best self and really showing those leadership qualities and connecting. And I think that's important. And I will, I'll give one more recommendation. There's a book by Seth Godin called Lynchpin. And it's really geared toward people that are within an organization and how do you, without necessarily leaving the organization or taking on a different role, how do you become a leader within what you're doing right now and not become resentful at the things that you have to do, but actually come to it with joy and passion. And I think that mindset has not yet become commonplace, but I think it needs to be. Okay, Nick, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Oh, thank you, Lily. It's been a great experience and I really appreciate your questions and nice to get to know you. It's been fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.